good to see everyone here this evening. I trust that you'll take your Bibles out and follow along as we study from God's Word. I'd like to thank Shannon for the uh, lesson that he brought to us this evening. In fact, I think tonight's lesson is going to uh, complement his lesson quite well, uh, at least I hope so, as I have it played out in my mind. Uh, but he began this morning in, in the book of 1 John, and it made me a little nervous because that's exactly where I want, wanted to begin this evening. Uh, so if you do have a Bible or a Bible app with you, I encourage you to open it to the book of 1 John as we will begin our study from there. <clears throat> you know, John, the book of 1 John tells us a lot about things that we know. That is, uh, we as Christians, there are some things that we can be assured of things that, that we can hang our hat on, things that we can take confidence in because we know them to be true. That's a running theme throughout the book of 1 John. For instance, he tells us in chapter 5 and verse 13 that you can know that you have eternal life. You can examine your own life. You can compare it to the scriptures. And if those things are aligned, you can know that you have eternal life. John tells him in chapter 5 and verse 13 that I've written to you for that purpose that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, another running theme throughout the book of 1 John is abiding in Him. Particularly in chapters 2, 3, and 4, you can know that you abide in Him. We can know that we abide in Christ. We can know that we abide in the Father. Well, He also tells us in the book of 1 John that you can know the truth from error. Chapter 3 and verse 19 says, And by this we know that we are of the truth. Chapter 4 and verse 6, latter part of that verse says, By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You can know truth and you can know error and you can know how to distinguish truth from error. Chapter 3 and verse 16, he tells us, You can know what love is. He says, By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. By looking at, at what Christ did for us, you can know love. We can know that we are a child of God. That's, that's pretty much the main point of all of chapter 3. It's about being children of God. And you can know that you are a child of God. Chapter 5 and verse 18, he says, you, you know that the child of God does not sin. Those are some things that, that we can know. Well, I want to focus our attention on some things that we know, but I want to point out three things that we know about sin. And the first is taken here from 1 John. These are three basic truths that we can know and we can be assured of and we can know that these things are certain about sin. Number one, we can know what sin is. 1 John 3 and verse 4 defines that for us. You can know what sin is. If you're open there, look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. You can know what sin is. It's a breaking or a violating of God's law. That's the first basic truth about sin. The second basic truth that you can know about sin is you can know that your sin is going to separate you from God. We won't take the time to turn over there. You probably know the passage well in, the, in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2 where he says, Your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. That's the second basic truth about sin that you can know. You can know what sin is and you can know that it separates you from God. Number three, we can know that we will be repaid for our sin. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3 with me, if you will. This may seem like a strange place to go to make this point because 
the context here in Colossians chapter 3 is actually talking about the servant-master relationship and how the servant who obeys his master in verse 24 is going to be rewarded for that. But in contrast to that, verse 25, if you're open there, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 25 says, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. I want us to focus on that word wrong there. That comes from the Greek word adikeo, which means to act unjustly or wickedly or to sin. So in other words, if we, if we exchange that word for sin, but he who sins will be repaid. You can know that you will be repaid for your sin. That's the same word that is translated unjust in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 11. So those, those are three basic truths that we can know about sin. And I want us to keep these in the back of our minds as we go through our study this evening. You can know what sin is, you can know sin separates you from God, and you can know that you will be repaid for your sin. You will be punished for your sin. And yet, despite all that we can know about sin, despite those three basic truths that we have just listed, still excuses are made as to why people continue to live contrary to God's law. They may say, well, I know what the Bible says, but... And they begin to make an excuse. You may hear someone say, well, I know what the Bible says, but after all, no one is perfect. There's only one perfect person, and that was Christ. And I, I know what the Bible says, but we can't be, live a perfect life. And that's an excuse for living contrary to God's law. Someone may say, well, I know what the Bible says, but after all, God is, is a loving God. And God is going to accept me for who I am. That's uh, something that is being, being pushed uh, in our modern-day society, when you look at the, uh, the LGBTQ, whatever all the letters are uh, for that movement, or, or the transgender movement, is accept me for who I am. And that may be an argument that we make, that God's, God's a loving God. He's just going to accept me for who I am. Or someone may say, I know what the Bible says, but after all, God wants me to be happy. God wouldn't want to, me to go through life being unhappy or being miserable. God wants me to be happy. Or I know what the Bible says, but I've done more good in my life than I have done bad. As if we're, we're going through life netting out uh, our, our good deeds and our bad deeds, and as long as we've done a little bit more good than bad, then that's all that matters. I want to suggest to you that in making these excuses, we are turning our back on those three basic principles that we know about sin. We can know what sin is, we can know that it separates us from God, and we can know that we will be repaid and punished for our sin. In light of that this evening, I want to bring to you a lesson that I've entitled, Violating God's Law is Sin Even If. And then in each point of our lesson, we're going to fill in that dot, dot, dot. Violating God's law is sin even if. And we're going to examine some of these excuses that some might make as to why they continue to, to live in sin. Number one, we're going to, we're going to point out eight of these excuses this evening. Number one, violating God's law is sin even if it is considered acceptable by most. Let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. This is a New Testament passage, but uh, it's talking about an Old Testament story of, of Noah and the ark. And in uh, talking about God's long-suffering, he says, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 3 and in verse 20, that who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, 
were saved through water. There's a few, eight souls. Now, I'm not sure what the population of the world was at that time, but we are led to believe that eight is a very small number, very small percentage of people. And I'm just pointing out that in the days of Noah, it was generally acceptable by most to live contrary to God's law. Well, if we go a little further into the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 13, we know the story. Uh, we don't have to take the time to turn over there because you know the story well of the uh, 12 spies who were sent out to spy out the land of Canaan. Only 10 of them returned with uh, a good report. Uh, only 10 of them, uh, only two of the, of the 12 gave a report that was in uh, alliance with, with God's, uh, in concordance with, with God's will. Again, most people accepted the report of the 10. Even though it's considered acceptable by most, does not make it right. Well, a little, uh, if we back up a little bit into the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 18, we know that Sodom would not have been destroyed if at least 10 righteous souls could have been found. And uh, in Genesis 18 is where we see uh, Abraham negotiating with God. Of, what, what if there were 50 righteous souls? And God says, well, I, I'd spare the city for the sake of 50. What if there were 40 righteous souls? And he said, well, I'll, I'll spare the city for the, for the uh, sake of 40. And you, he goes all the way down to 30 to 20 to 10. What if there were 10 righteous souls? And God says, I'll spare the city if, if 10 are found. Of course, we know the story, 10 were not found. That is that wickedness and ungodliness was generally acceptable by most, and that did not make it right. I want to suggest to you that warnings are given in the scriptures about following what is accepted by most. In Exodus chapter 23 and verse 2, God warned Israel that you shall not follow a crowd to do evil. Jesus warned in the New Testament that many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus also warned in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, uh, he says, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. There's a danger in following uh, what is generally acceptable by most. That doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong, uh, but just because it's acceptable by most does not make it right. If you go out into the world, you think about most of the people that you interact with on a daily basis. Uh, if you interact with the public at all in, in your job, or maybe it's a coworker, uh, social uh, drinking is something that's generally accepted by most people in the world. Uh, an adulterous marriage is something that's generally accepted by most people in the world. Telling a small white lie that really does no harm to anyone, that's something that's generally accepted by most people in the world. Violating God's law is sin even if it is considered acceptable by most. But secondly, violating God's law is sin even if you don't get caught. Even if you don't get caught in your sin. Violating God's law is sin even if you don't get caught. Shannon alluded to this in his uh, lesson this, this morning, but I want us to turn back to Genesis chapter 3 and point out that oftentimes one, uh, when they're caught up in sin, they try, the first thing they try to do is hide their sin. Genesis chapter 3, Shannon pointed out to us in verse 6 about the three ways in which Eve was tempted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And after they had sinned and, and realized that they were naked in verse 7, Verse 8 tells us the first thing they did after, oh, I realized I've sinned. Here's the first thing they did. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves. Why would they hide themselves? Uh, 
I suggest that they probably thought that they could hide themselves and they could hide the fact that they had committed sin against God. They're trying to hide their sin. Well, another example of this, uh, and this, this too goes along with what Shannon was, was talking about this morning, but the, the sin of David. In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, the sin with Bathsheba. Once he found out that she was with child, uh, he tries calling her husband home, Uriah, uh, and wants her, uh, the husband to come back and lie with, with Bathsheba. So it looks as if this is his child and not David's child. And David gets so caught up in that when Uriah refuses to come that he ends up basically murdering Uriah, having him killed, putting him on the front lines where he would, would be killed. He's trying to cover his sin. He's trying not to get caught. Well, if you will, open with me to Proverbs chapter 7. You remember that Proverbs chapters 5, 6, and 7 have to do with warnings about the harlot. And in chapter 7, we learn that one of the ways in which the harlot will try to entice is by telling her customer that we're not going to get caught. Don't worry, uh, don't worry about committing this sin because no one's going to know. We're not going to get caught. Proverbs chapter 7, begin reading with me at verse 18. He said, come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Now verse 19, for my husband is not at home. What's she saying? She, essentially, she's saying we're not going to get caught. We're not going to get caught. Continue in verse 19. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and will come home and on an appointed day. He's gone. He's not here. I know exactly when he's coming back. We're safe. We can commit this sin, and we're not going to get caught. Violating God's law is sin even if you don't get caught. Because, see, we may be able to successfully hide our sins uh, from our fellow man. We can hide it from our family, hide it from the church, hide it from the elders. But you will not be able to hide your sin from the eyes of the all-seeing God. Numbers 32 and verse 23, a passage we know well, says, You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure that your sin will find you out. You may be able to successfully hide it here on earth, but be sure your sin is going to find you out. Or Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 3 that says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 14 says, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And the New Testament passage, Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse 13, that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The one whom it really matters, the one whom we must give an account to, he is the one who has the all-seeing eyes. And it doesn't matter what we can hide from our fellow man, we cannot hide it from God. Violating God's law is sin, even if you don't get caught. But number three, another excuse that some might make as to why we continue to live contrary to God's law, violating God's law is sin even if it brings personal pleasure. In other words, the excuse that I was talking about earlier about it makes me happy, uh, God, God wouldn't want me to, to live a miserable life. He wants me to be happy. Essentially what you're saying is that it brings about my personal pleasure. And so I'm going to continue to live the life that I am. If you would turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 uh, relays to us the faith of so many in the Old Testament. 
And in verse 25, in talking about the faith of Moses, it says that, that Moses gave up something. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse, uh, back up to verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. You see, sin can be pleasurable. Sometimes we, we view the, the, the life of sin as if it's just going to be full of hardships, and that may not necessarily be the case. Here, the, the, these sins are called the passing pleasures of sin, but the key word there is passing. You may have a footnote or your translation may say temporary. It's just a temporary uh, pleasure. Job chapter 12 and verse 6 uh, says the tents of robbers prosper. That is, why do people oftentimes uh, stay in their sin even when they know it's wrong? It's because they're prospering in their sin. They're enjoying their sin. Their sin is pleasurable. If it was something that we didn't like, it would be easy to give it up. That's why sin is oftentimes so difficult to, to give up. So it is possible that we might find some sins pleasurable, but violating God's law is sin even if it brings personal pleasure. There are many warnings that are given in the scriptures about personal pleasure. And pleasure within itself is not, not wrong and it's not what is condemned here. Uh, but there are some warnings that are given in the scriptures such as Luke chapter 8 and verse 14. This is in the parable of the sower, and this is in the section where Jesus is giving an explanation of the parable of the sower. And he says the cares, uh, he mentions cares, riches, and the pleasures of life. And that's where he's talking about when the, when the thorns come up and, and they choke out the seed where the, where the seed and the word cannot grow. And those thorns there are likened to these cares, riches, and pleasures of life. There's a danger in the pleasures of life. They can choke out the gospel from our lives. Well, Paul warned in Titus chapter 3 and in verse 3 about serving various lusts and pleasures. Also in 2 Thessalonians 2.12, uh, he mentions having pleasure in unrighteousness. We can take pleasure uh, and enjoy our unrighteousness. So uh, making the excuse that God just wants me to be happy uh, is not going to cut it. Peter also warned in 2 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 13 that some count it ple pleasure to carouse or revel in the daytime. You see, some sins may very well be pleasure to us, uh, pleasurable to us. Sexual sins may br bring about a personal pleasure. Gambling may bring about a personal pleasure. Uh, uh, partaking of alcohol and drinking and drugs may bring about a personal pleasure. Stealing may bring about personal pleasure. Uh, an adulterous marriage may bring about a personal pleasure. That's oftentimes uh, the case when, when someone's in an unscriptural marriage, uh, they'll say, well, God wouldn't want me to, to not be happy and have to live a single life. God wants me to be happy. What they're saying essentially is my sin brings me personal pleasure and I'm going to continue in it. Violating God's law is sin, even if it brings about personal pleasure. But number five, Violating God's law is sin even if a person thinks it is right. Violating God's law is sin even if a person thinks it is right. We would do well to heed some of the warnings of uh, Solomon that he gives us in the book of Proverbs, such as Proverbs 21 and verse 2, when he said that every way of a man is right in his own eyes. That is, they're doing what they think is right. Or Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 15, the way of the fool 
is right in his own eyes. Even the fool thinks he's right in his own eyes. Our Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 15, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. I want us to turn to uh, the New Testament now to try to make this point. And look, in, uh, if you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 26. I want to notice that Paul, in the New Testament, he oft, oftentimes talked about his former life as a persecutor of Christians. And this is one of those instances, instances in uh, Acts chapter 26, beginning at verse 9, he's going to relay some things that he did in his former life as a persecutor of Christians. And he says, beginning at verse 9, he says, Indeed, I myself thought. I thought. You might underline that in, in verse 9. Indeed, I myself thought. He was doing something that he thought to be right. And he goes on in the following verses to talk about how he, he threw people in jail, he put people to death. Uh, verse 11, that I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. I persecuted Christians and I thought what I was doing was right. We're going to come back a little later to chapter 23 and verse 1. But there Paul talks about how I've lived in all good conscience. I had a, a good conscience after what I had done to these Christians. See, violating God's law is sin even if we think what we are doing is right. See, there are many people who may think that they are a Christian, yet they've, they've never been baptized into Christ. But yet I think I'm a Christian. I've said the sinner's prayer. Uh, I've been saved. And they think that they are right. But they are not. There may be uh, many who think they are part of the Lord's church, when in fact they are a part of denominationalism. And if you were to ask them, they would tell you that it really doesn't matter what church you go to. After all, we're all going to the same place. Uh, we're just taking different roads and different routes. They think they are a part of the Lord's church. There may be those who think that they are teaching the truth, when in fact they are teaching error. Violating God's law is a sin even if a person thinks it is right. Well, here's the fifth thing. I think I said the last point was number five, but this one's number five. That was four. Number five, violating God's law is sin even if it is done in anger, even if it is done in anger. Oftentimes we may hear people say, well, I can understand why he did that or why she did that, because after all, that was a, a, a tough situation for them and they were angry. Uh, so I can understand why, why they did that. Moses was angry in the Old Testament when he struck the rock and had to suffer the consequences of his actions. Let's turn back to Numbers 20. Numbers 20, you probably uh, remember this story well. <clears throat> but there was a simple command that was given to Moses in Numbers 20. And that is, that is that as they were getting water from the rock... Verse 8, God gave him a simple command. Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation and speak to the rock. That's a pretty straightforward and a pretty simple command. Speak to the rock. But what did Moses do? Jump down to verse 11. Then Moses lifted his hand and he struck the rock. God told him to speak to it. He struck the rock. There was a blatant, blatant act of disobedience. And because of that, he had to suffer the consequences of his sin. Verse 12, at the latter part of verse 12, um, Moses is told, here's going to be the consequence of your sin. You shall not bring this assembly into the land 
which I have given them. That was part of his punishment. He would not enter into the promised land. Well, if we flip over to Psalm 106, we'll see the reason that, uh, that Moses struck the rock. Why did, why did Moses disobey? Why did he strike the rock instead of speaking to the rock? Psalm 106 and verse 29. This is speaking of Moses. It says in verse 29, Thus they provoked him to anger. Jump down to verse 32. Psalm 106, 32. They angered him also at the waters of strife. You may have a footnote there that says the waters of Meribah. That's the very instance we were just reading about in Numbers chapter 20. He did it out of anger. They angered him at the waters of strife so that it went ill with Moses on account of them. And Moses had to suffer the consequences of his sin, something that he did, he lashed out of, out of anger. Uh, and probably if, if we were standing there watching Moses, we'd say, I really did, can't blame you, Moses, because these people are so rebellious, uh, and, and I would have been angry too. But he lashed out, out of anger and did something contrary to God's law. But violating God's law is sin, even if it is done in anger. But I also want to suggest to you that that does not suggest that we can never be angry. We know Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26 that Paul said, be angry and sin not. It's possible to be angry and not sin at the same time. That's possible. Jesus was angry in Matthew 21 and verse 12 when he went in and threw out the money changers from the temple. And he told them they had turned the temple into a den of thieves. Also, uh, going back to that passage in Ephesians 4 and in verse 26, we learned that our anger should be short-lived. It says there at the latter part of verse 26, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. It should be something that's short-lived. Don't, don't let, let it, uh, or don't dwell on it. Don't let it eat at you so much. Because our anger, the problem is not with anger itself, but it's what anger can cause us to think, uh, what it can cause us to say, what it can cause us to do. There's probably not a person present here this evening who hasn't said something out of anger uh, where you had to go back to someone and apologize to them and, and say, I'm sorry, I, I was just angry, I, I got caught up in the moment, uh, I didn't mean what I said. All of us can probably relate to that. But Moses had to suffer consequences, uh, the consequences of his sin that he committed out of anger. Violating God's law is sin even if it is done in anger. Number six, violating God's law is sin even if it is done in ignorance. Doug, uh, Doug alluded to this in uh, our Bible class this morning, but if you'll turn over to Leviticus 5, it talks about sins that are committed in ignorance or unknowingly. They were still called sins nonetheless, and they were sins that they had to make atonement for. Leviticus chapter 5 and verse 17, it says, If a person sins and commits any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he does not know it, yet he is guilty and bears his iniquity. Ezekiel 45 and verse 20 uh, talks about much the same thing. It talks about sins that you commit unknowingly or sins that are committed, I think it uses the word ignorance there in, in Ezekiel 45 and verse 20. Violating God's law is sin even if it is done in ignorance. You see, those who crucified Jesus did it out of ignorance. You might remember in Peter's sermon in, in Acts chapter 3 and verse 17, Speaking to those who had crucified the Lord, he says, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers. You were ignorant. It was a sin that you committed out of ignorance. Or Luke chapter 23, as Jesus hung from the cross, 
He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. They, They don't realize who I am. They don't realize that I'm the son of God. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They did it out of, out of ignorance, but th- does that relieve them of the responsibilities for their sin? Certainly not. God's people of old were destroyed for, uh, for ignorance because of a lack of knowledge. Hosea warned about that in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6. He said, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Let's turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I want us to notice that ignorance is linked to unbelief. If someone is having a problem of committing sins of ignorance, it may be a problem of faith. It may be a problem of belief. I mentioned earlier that uh, there are several passages where Paul talks about his former life. And this is, this is one such instance of that. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, he says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly. He did it ignorantly. Now what's the next two words? There at the end of verse 13. I did it ignorantly in unbelief. His ignorance is directly linked and directly tied to his unbelief. It it could very well be an unbelief problem or a lack of faith problem when we are committing sins in ignorance. I I want to draw a parallel here that I think we can Uh, so clearly see, and that is that ignorance does not relieve us of the consequences of violating civil law. You go out here on this highway and you drive 85 miles an hour and you get pulled over uh, and you tell the police officer, I didn't know what the speed limit was. I didn't know know it was 55 on on this highway. Uh, That argument's probably not going to go very well saying that I didn't know. I I was ignorant of what the speed limit was. Or maybe it's stealing. Maybe, uh, uh, you're, you're, you're guilty of tax fraud, and uh, maybe you didn't report all of your income to the IRS, and they come to you and say, hey, you owe us more money, and you say, well, I, I didn't know I had to report that, uh, or I didn't know I left that off of, uh, off of my statement. Uh, that's not going to go very far with an IRS agent. That ignorance does not relieve us of the consequences of violating civil laws. Uh, so why would it re- relieve us of the consequences of violating God's law? Violating God's law is sin even if it is done in ignorance. Well, here's number seven. Violating God's law is sin even if others are doing worse. I talked about that at the beginning of the lesson that, that we may compare ourselves to others and, and uh, as, as long as we're doing a little bit more good than we're doing bad in our lives, then, then we think all is well. But violating God's law is sin even if others are doing worse. You see, we may hear the excuse that there are others doing worse than I am. You may go talk to somebody about maybe a known sin in their lives uh, and encourage them to make correction of that. And they say, well, you know, so-and-so over here is doing the same thing. Or so-and-so over here is doing something even worse than what I was doing. Violating God's law is sin even if others are doing worse. In 1 Kings chapter 16... This is speaking of Omri, who was a king of Israel. We know that all the kings of Israel were were evil and wicked, but this says Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all those who were before him. So I'll raise the question, does, does that justify all those who were before him? All the kings of Israel were wicked. Does that justify all the ones before him because they were worse than him? Does that justify Jeroboam because he was worse than Jeroboam? 
Certainly not. Our first, Peter, our first Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of, the house, of his household, he has denied the faith, and he is worse than an infidel or an unbeliever. He's worse than an unbeliever. Does that justify the unbeliever just because a man will not work and provide for his own, provide for his family? That's worse than an unbeliever, but does that justify the unbeliever? Certainly not. I want to suggest to you that all sins, no matter how bad, and I put that, that word bad in, in quotation marks, because uh, all sin is bad, but all sinners, no matter, all sinners, no matter how bad, will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Let's turn over to Revelation 21. I want us to notice, interesting to note, the different sins that are listed in Revelation 21 and verse 8. And here we're going to see that, that we have no right to be pointing fingers at, at other people saying that they're doing worse than I am. So, so don't worry about my sin. Focus on them. Look in Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Notice the sins that are mentioned there of those who would be cast cast off into the fire. It says in verse 8, the cowardly. The coward is put on the same level as the murderer or as the adulterer. Uh, again, all sins uh, are on an equal playing field. And, and this is uh, related to us as well. If we go over to James chapter 2, James chapter 2, we, we oftentimes quote verse 10, that, that says, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. But James gives an illustration of that, uh, that uh, it really doesn't matter what sin you commit, uh, you're guilty of the whole law if you sin. And if we back up in verse 8, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you commit sin. Just showing partiality towards one or, or being a respecter of persons, that's listed as sin. And then he goes on to say, the same God that tells you that is the same God who tells you in verse 11, do not commit adultery. It's the same God who also tells you in verse 11, do not commit murder. Whether you're showing partiality to someone, whether you murder someone, whether you commit adultery, it's all on the same plane. All sins are equal. Violating God's sin or violating God's law is sin, even if others are doing worse. But our eighth point and final point this evening is violating God's law is sin, even if it is done with a good conscience. We alluded to that a little earlier, talking about how Paul had lived in all good conscience. And oftentimes we hear people make that excuse as to why are you continuing to live the life that you're living well, what I'm doing is not violating my conscience. Uh, and I have a clear conscience. I have a clean conscience. And uh, they may say things like, I just let my conscience be my guide. You know, I don't, I don't want to live by the, by the strict rules and the guidelines of, of the gospel, but I'll let my conscience be my guide as I, as I walk through life. Or they may say, as long as you have a good conscience, that's all that matters. If you can sleep at night, that's all that matters. I want to suggest to you that it's possible that we can have different types of conscience. And we won't take the time to look at all these passages. But it's possible from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 12, you could have a weak conscience. 
Or Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22, it's possible that you could have an evil conscience. 1 Peter 4 and verse 2 talks about uh, having a conscience that's seared with a hot iron. Uh, a conscience that's seared with a hot, hot iron is quite useless. Uh, if you ever burn yourself and your hand, uh, it, it becomes numb. If you have a conscience that's numb, it, it's useless. It's not doing you any good. Uh, so we can have a, a weak conscience, an evil conscience, a seared conscience. We can have a good conscience, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, in verse 5, or we can have a pure conscience. That's talking about the qualifications of deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 9. It's possible to have a pure conscience. So when we make sta statements like, oh, I just let my conscience be my guide and I just go through life following my conscience, you better be careful because there are different types of conscience. We might have a weak conscience. You might have an evil conscience. You might have a seared conscience. Hopefully your conscience is, is good and pure, but it, it possibly could not be. Paul said in Acts, uh, this is what the passage I alluded to earlier, in Acts chapter 23 and verse 1, that I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And yet he goes on later uh, in the book of Acts and, and in other places, 1 Timothy as well, talking about all the things that he did in his former life in persecuting Christians. You see, we may try to justify some things because we are doing them for a good cause. My, my conscience is clean because, after all, what I'm doing, I'm doing it for a good cause. A person may, uh, may steal from someone who is rich to give to someone who is poor. They're doing it for a good cause. My conscience is clean because uh, I'm helping a poor person out. That's a good deed. That's a good cause. A person may lie to someone uh, to make them feel better, make them feel better about themselves, or maybe to encourage them, or, or maybe to, uh, to, to try to stay out of, uh, out of trouble with someone. They may, may tell a lie. I'm doing it for a good cause. That's, that was the whole push behind the, the social gospel movement was we're doing it for a good cause. We are aiding in man's social needs, and they were spending uh, church funds for things which they were not authorized to spend church funds on because, after all, we're aiding in the social needs rather than the uh, there was more emphasis put on the social needs than, than the spiritual needs. Essentially, what they were saying is our conscience is clean because we were doing it for a good cause. I want to suggest that, that Paul refuted that idea in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1 about doing something just for because it's a good cause. He says in Romans 6 and verse 1, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, should we continue to sin just so, just so God can do good by showing us his, his grace and his mercy? Or he, uh, he's refuting uh, an argument that was made in, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 8 where Paul and his companions were falsely accused of saying, let us do, do evil that good may come. In other words, they're saying that let, let's continue sinning because God, God is, is going to do something good. I want us to close this evening by looking at 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you will turn over there. And this too is likely a story that, that you know well from the Old Testament. But 1 Samuel 15, I want to make the point that Saul sought to justify his actions by sparing King Agag. And we're going to see the excuse that he makes, uh, if I might paraphrase what he's saying, is he's saying, I'm doing this with a good conscience, I'm doing this for a good cause. The command that was given to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, is given in verse 3. It says, Now go and attack Amalek 
and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant, nursing, child, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Essentially, if, it, if it's living, if it's breathing, kill it. Wipe everything out. But we're going to see what he did. In verse 13, um, Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul says at the end of verse 13 that I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I've done exactly what God commanded me to do. But Samuel said in verse 14, why then do I hear the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen in my ears? That you obviously have not done all that God has commanded you to do because he commanded you to kill all these animals. And why do I hear them that they're still alive? I can hear them. Look at his excuse in verse 15. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. What's he saying? I did this for a good cause. I did it for a good purpose. Our plan was to, to sacrifice uh, these to God and, and to praise God with them. Even though he blatantly disobeyed what God had told him, he's saying, I can justify it because I did it for a good purpose cause. I did it with a clean conscience. Violating God's law is sin, even if it is done with a good conscience. We might think of Uzzah uh, also in, in 2 Samuel chapter, uh, chapter 6 and, and verses 6 and 7, the good deed, and put that in quotations, the good deed that he did, he just reached his hand out to try to steady the ark to keep it from falling. Uh, there probably would not be a, a person present who would, who would, uh, uh, condemn him for that because after all he's doing a good deed he, he he's trying to save the ark but we know he was struck dead because they were told not to touch it and to only carry it with the poles uh, that were provided violating god's law is sin even if it is done with a good conscience well those are eight excuses that that some people might make as to why we continue to live a life of sin uh, and why we uh, uh, are not willing to make uh, some of the difficult changes in our lives is because you don't realize that uh, what sin is. We go back to those basic, three basic truths that we started out with. You can know what sin is. You can know that it separates you from God. You can know that you will be punished for your sin. Violating God's law is sin, even if it is considered acceptable by most, even if you don't get caught, even if it brings pleasure, even if a person thinks it is right, even if it is done in anger and ignorance, even if others are doing worse, and even if it is done with a good conscience. May God help us all to realize what sin is and that it indeed does separate us from God. Maybe those here this evening uh, who perhaps uh, you have fallen back in, into the world into a life of sin and, and you recognize your sin, you want to confess your sin before uh, your brethren here this evening and we can pray with you to God uh, that your sins will be forgiven. If there are those who have not been buried in the waters of baptism and you have need of being baptized this evening, we I also encourage you to come at this time as we stand and sing.